Today's um, passage is from the book of Psalm, Psalm 19. Psalm 19, and we'll be reading the um, entire Psalm. Psalm 19, to the choir master, a Psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the ends, from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. There is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, and even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. May that be our prayer. Thanks. Morning, everyone. I also want to, as has been said a few times from this pulpit, extend um, blessings uh, to wish you a, a blessed Chinese New Year, if you're celebrating the Chinese New Year, pray that it'll be a, a wonderful year for you all and that it'll be a year of, of, of good times with family and uh, growth in the Lord and um, a strength in, in all the things that the Lord would have for us, good things that he would have for us. Uh, I pray that the celebrations over the next couple of weeks would be a, a joyous time. I also want to just ask if you've uh, not looked at your phone yet. Just I did hear one going off. Just check that it's that it's on silence so that it, it doesn't go off during the sermon. We're in a series, and as Josh mentioned, that series has to do with five burning questions. And so we've got Psalm 19 before us, but it's a topical sermon. So I'm not going to necessarily be expounding that passage. I will refer to it. We typically read Bible passages and, and open them up. Sometimes we do topical sermons. Let's think a bit about the question of God and his existence. In 2009, a campaign was run by atheists in the United Kingdom. They raised some money, about £150,000, to have these words that you will see on the screen placed on 800 buses. The words are, if you can't see it properly... There's probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. Richard Dawkins, who's in the picture there, 
the Oxford professor and vocal atheist of some years now, he didn't want those words exactly. He wanted it to read, there is almost certainly no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. That's what he wanted. But other atheists said, it's impossible to prove the non-existence of God. And so that is why they settled on the word probably. Now, there are many vocal people, you will know this, in our world who say that God does not exist. Lots of celebrities have made statements like this one from celebrated actor John Malkovich. He said, I grew tired of religion sometime not long after birth. I believe in people. I believe in humans. I believe in a car but I don't believe in something I have absolutely no evidence for of for millenniums. I think he meant to say millennia. That's the proper way to say that word. But absolutely no evidence, absolutely none for all these millennia. That's quite a statement to make. There are many highly educated people. One that we often mention is the other Oxford professor in mathematics, John Lennox. People like that who think there is evidence for God, much evidence for God. And this morning, I want to show you some evidence. There really is a lot, and we don't have time to look into all of it. I just want to show you some. And I want to look in four areas. I want to look in the area of design. I want to look... In the Bible, just shortly, I want to then thirdly look at the question of morality, and then I want to end by considering Jesus and how his existence speaks to us of God's existence. So let's think a bit about design. Psalm 19 starts out saying that the heavens declare the glory of God and that the sky above proclaims his handiwork. In other words, what you see when you look up in the sky speaks of a designer, that there is one who made everything. And in verse 2, we are told that this information is spoken day after day and night to night. In other words, this information is always being spoken every day. When you look at the sky, whether it's at night, in the daytime or the nighttime, information comes to you that there is a God. In the day you see the sun. Verses 4 to 6 talk about the magnificence of the sun. Those verses describe the circuit that the sun runs each day. There's a rhythm. It's orderly. It's mathematical. It tells you that there is a designer. The sun is a remarkable thing. The the more you study it, the more you see it's designed. When you consider that it's just the right distance from our planet, when you consider that it's just the right size and the right intensity for life to exist on earth, that's a mathematical thing. If you were to move the sun just a little bit closer to our planet... Life could not exist. We would all burn up. If you were to move it just a little bit away from our planet, life could not exist because we would freeze. It's mathematical. 
And note from the psalm that this design in the sky, whether it's the sun or other things in the sky that you look at, that this design in the sky, notice it pours out speech. Think about that phrase. God is saying that his creation as we see it in the sky doesn't just hint, doesn't just hint that there's a God. It pours out information. And what does this information do? Have a look again at verse, uh, at the rest of verse 2. What does this information do? It reveals knowledge. This information that pours out. What, what knowledge does it reveal? Verse 1, the glory of God. Now we could spend hours looking at the wonder of the cosmos that is so mathematically precise, so finely balanced to support life on earth that we could not exist if all of these laws and all of these constants were off by a razor's edge. We could look at all that. Uh, The arguments about design, philosophers call this and theologians call this argument, the teleological argument. Teleological. It comes from the Greek word telos. The Greek word telos means end or purpose. When I was about six years old, my parents got their first television. It was in the 70s. And it looked something like the one that's in the picture. Imagine having to go back to one of those. And I, as a kid, as a six-year-old, was so fascinated by this technology. I first had to be told by my dad, there isn't someone inside the box sitting there reading the news. Fascinated by this thing. That For a few afternoons after school, I came home and I thought, I'm going to build my own television. So I wanted one in my bedroom. So I got a crate, an old wooden crate, and I thought that all I had to do to get to that purpose was cut a hole at the bottom of the the crate in the shape of a TV screen and then nail some bottle tops all down the one side as, as knobs and somehow wire it in and plug it into the wall. I never got to that point. And then an image would come on the screen. I really believed an image would come on the screen. Now, I had a purpose. I had a telos, a purpose, an end that I wanted to achieve. But I did not have the ability to design and to make all the intricate parts to meet that purpose. And in those days, the inside of a TV looked like what you're now about to see on the screen. Is a little six-year-old going to come up with all that stuff? I could not put it together. But the glorious God of the universe had a telos, a purpose for something extremely sophisticated. And he designed and made all the working parts to meet that end, to meet that purpose. You know, we can look in so many places to see his hand of design. What about the human body? All the way down to our DNA coding. It's a complex structure, complex system of coding designed to carry information that determines your heights and your your hair coloring, your physical frame, the depth of your voice, 
It's a phenomenal thing. And so we see design and purpose everywhere. The teleological argument is strong evidence for the existence of God. And it's particularly strong when you're looking at the sophistication of our world and how it works. But some will say, yeah, they think it happened by chance. That when you take billions and billions of years and chance happening in that, yeah, these amazing things could have developed. That's a position that some hold. But the intricate sophistication of creation makes it less reasonable to say that it all happened by chance. If you went for a walk in the country and you came across a furrow going from one puddle of water, there's the furrow to another puddle of water, it may be that you say that happened randomly. There was a storm last night. And look at that, that's, that's, that's a coincidence, wonderful. But if you went for a walk in the country and you saw a straight, long, meticulously dug ditch carrying water from a river to a farmer's field and then seeing that river water spread out across that field, watering crops that are growing in ordered lines, you would not conclude that that just happened by chance. You would conclude that this was made with purpose. There was an end in mind as to why some brain went and dug that ditch and channeled the water through. An intelligent agent. And that is the teleological argument. Well, you may disagree that this is evidence for God. You may say, I reject that. It's nonsense. And of course, this is a free country as Terence was praying. We pray it remains free that people can uh, believe and express different views. But I do want to make this clear. If what I'm saying is all true, then you will be judged on this. And I don't say this to be mean. I say this because it is the loving thing to do. If you believe that these things are true and you don't warn people, then you haven't loved them. And so if it is true, the Bible tells us that that this rejection of God in the light of the designer around you, that this will be on your charge sheet when the day of judgment comes on that last day. God has told us this beforehand. So look with me, keep your finger in Psalm 19, but look with me at Romans chapter 1. Just flick over to Romans chapter 1. This is where God appeals to creation, to design, to, to speak of his existence. God is saying here in what we're about to read that the teleological argument, the argument about design towards a purpose is enough, this argument is enough, God says, to hold you and me accountable on the day that we face him. So Romans 1, I want to pick it up from verse 18. It says, For the wrath of God, so God's anger, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Why is God angry? It goes on, it answers, it says, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God has a problem with us as humans. He says we we suppress the truth. And he's talking particularly here about those who are rejecting him. So how do they suppress truth? This 
this thing that makes God angry. We keep reading. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. And here's how he's done it. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, his existence, these things have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. And here it comes, in the things that have been made. How does God end as he gives this to us in Romans? So they are without excuse. It's important that I put that to you. You're free to believe what you want to believe. You're free to reject that. But I need to tell you what God has said. So the argument from design. Some may say that design is not necessarily explained by a God, by the existence of a God. They, they, they will say, well, what if there's another explanation for all of this, all of this sophistication, another explanation that we don't yet have? Maybe one day we will discover that. We don't know everything. And so what people in that camp are saying is that you theists, you people who believe in God, have this God of the gaps. It's a gap of knowledge. We don't necessarily know how it all came like this. And you've put God into that gap. Well, I'll say, well, we don't know everything. And yes, we are always discovering. But there's much evidence. And there's more. And it certainly isn't unreasonable to believe that all of this is put together by a designer. But then there's much more to think about. That just adds to the evidence. Adds and adds and adds that God exists. And so I want to turn now to looking at Revelation or the Bible. So let's be back in Psalm 19. And I want to now hover around the second half, which starts at verse 7. And it speaks there of the word of God. It's, it's speaking of what he has said in the Bible. All the intricate design that you see in creation tells you there is a God, but you can't know who that God is unless he specifically reveals himself. So when you come across words spoken and then written, recorded, that are said to come from this God that is clear from creation, as he then reveals himself to people in, in words, you then should expect, if it's really God's word, that these words stand out, that they are special, that they have a divine feeling about them. Now, I'm not going to say much about this today because Josh looked at the wonder of the Bible last Sunday night, and that sermon will be up online when our admin team is back all together again. But I do want to point out that the Bible is an outstanding text. For example, it's full of prophecy that has come true and come true in detail. How do you, how do you explain that? Is it just chance that so many prophecies have come true in such fine detail? I don't think it's the chance is a reasonable explanation. Before we leave the point about the Bible as an outstanding text with divine fingerprints on it, I want you to note from the psalm, from verse 7 onwards, 
that the Bible, what Psalm 19 talks about as God's law or God's testimony, his precepts, his commandments. I want you to notice that this word of God has remarkable power over human lives. It changes life. In my work, I have seen this many, many times. As people have come to know God through the scriptures, their lives are turned around for good. You heard evidence, if you were here last week, of this when our preacher Roy, Roy Davies, spoke a bit of his testimony about how when he came to know God through his word, he was delivered out of addiction, out of depression. He's been, his life's been turned around. And I've seen this over and over again in ministry. And this is what Psalm 19 is saying. I just want to pick up a little bit from verses 7 and 8. Follow with me. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. You see all these good things that happen to people when they, when they come to know God's word. And so, a small point briefly puts, directing you back to what our brother Josh said Sunday night, the Bible itself is testimony to God's existence. Third point, the question of morality. All humans have some sort of moral feeling. And no matter what your beliefs are, people around us will say that some things are are just right, and that's it. It's right, and other things are wrong, and that's it. They they have a standard, a moral standard, an absolute moral standard. So let's, for instance, think about human rights. Should women have the same rights as men? Should women have the vote? Should they be paid the same as men for the same work, the same time put in, the same qualifications? Should they be paid the same? Well, in some countries, this is not the case. Women are banned from higher education. They are banned from going out in public without a male chaperone. They are banned from voicing their views in the public square. Now, as Christians who believe women are made in the image of God and men are made in the image of God, well, we believe women are equal to men. And so we would find what goes on in in those countries appalling. We believe God has spoken, and so to discriminate against women is a sin. See, we have an absolute moral standard that comes from God. But if we were to go to those countries and were to tell their leaders that they are wrong to treat Women like that, they will turn around and say, who says? And we would say, the Lord God of heaven and earth, that would be our response. The Lord God of heaven and earth says what you're doing is wrong. But what does the unbeliever do, particularly the social justice warrior of the West, the liberal of the West? If they were to go to those countries and call them out, and then they were asked by the leaders of those countries, who says... What would their reply be? What would be their moral authority upon which they say the way you're treating your women is wrong? 
Well, I think if you don't believe in God, the best that you can say is that you, as the social justice warrior of the liberal West, you don't like it. It doesn't sit well with you. Or you could give them a utilitarian argument where you say, well, this doesn't really work best for your society. Your society would be so much better off if there was harmony and all people worked together. But you know, the atheistic view, those who reject God, the atheistic evolutionary view talks about survival of the fittest. If there is no God, if there is just nature as we see it around us that came about by chance evolution over billions and billions of years, then what do we say about nature where we see strong animals overpowering weak ones and killing them? What do we say about strong animals snatching food away from the weaker ones? See, nature is harsh and there is violence in nature. So if we humans are the highest evolved form of nature that is like that, why is it morally wrong to exert strength upon those who are weaker in our society? Why is it morally, in an absolute sense, wrong? And I think the point is you can't have an absolute moral position on things without there being a source outside of us who says it is so, that this is right and that is wrong. Otherwise, our moral positions, if there's no God, are just preferences or they're just what the majority thinks in the area where we happen to live. But they're not matters of absolute morality. And so no, to talk about things being absolutely right or absolutely wrong means that we are appealing to a standard outside of us. That we expect all people, no matter what country, no matter what culture they're from, to adhere to. And in that sense, in us, that sense, that feeling in us uh, is there because there's a God and we are made in his image. That would be what we Christians say. Now, this is a point that is a deep point and it needs some more thinking. And so I want to refer you to Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God. It's very well written. It's very clear. And he's got a couple of chapters on this where he outlines it really well. And this topic probably could take up a sermon all on its own. So the question of morality, an outside standard, a God who has spoken. Lastly, the fourth point, the question of Jesus. In your world, whether you are at uni or whether in your line of work or when you think back to your your days of study, In your world, do you talk about history in terms of B.C., before Christ, and A.D., which is Latin for the year of our Lord, in other words, after Christ? Do you divide history between uh, uh, between ancient times and the last 2,000 years like that? Or do you use the other term that is used in many academic areas, which is, instead of before Christ, it's B.C.E., which means before the common era. And then for after Christ, or AD, the term is CE, meaning the common era. 
What do you use? Well, BCE and CE is designed to work Jesus out of the picture. People don't want to refer to Jesus when they talk about history. But you know, I find it really silly because you still got a division. BCE and CE. Jesus is still the hinge upon which history turns. He is a huge figure in history. Why? Because of the claim that this man rose from the dead. That in him is the cure for death. It's such a big deal. That's our biggest problem. There are many problems in our world, but the fact that we have to die one day is our biggest problem. And yet this man rose from the dead. Big thing in history. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul makes the point that this resurrection is the core of Christianity. If it is not true that Jesus rose from the dead, you have no Christianity. It's just nonsense and you can forget all about it. But if Jesus did rise from the dead, then you have someone that you need to face and answer to. You must give attention to him because all that he has said is true. His words are true. The case for the resurrection of Christ, the evidence for it, is actually quite overwhelming. And I'm astonished that many people just reject Jesus and reject God without actually doing the work and checking out whether there is good reason for believing in the resurrection or not. So many people just go with the culture. No, it's, there's no God and Jesus is not uh, not God and all that stuff. Men like Josh McDowell, Frank Morrison, Lee Strobel are men of all written books who set out as unbelievers to disprove Christianity. Josh McDowell, as a student, I think in the 60s, on campus, when he's hearing Christians talk, he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to prove to them it is wrong, it is not true. When he did all the work in the study, he came out the other end as a Christian. And Frank Morrison, the same, even earlier times, I think in the 40s. And then in the more recent times, Lee Strobel, who was a journalist, whose wife became a Christian, and he hated this. And so I'm going to prove to my wife that this thing is not true. And he, and he goes for the resurrection as an unbeliever. And in all his study, he's so overwhelmed by the evidence, he comes out the other end and now he's a Christian. If a man was dead and was then raised to life by God, then God exists. Biblical prophecy said that this would happen. Jesus said it would happen before he died. And then those who witnessed him resurrected were so deeply convicted about this truth that they, they proclaimed it to the world at the threat of death and many of them gave their lives for it. And then of course Paul, the zealous hater of Christians, the zealous Jew of the time, met the risen Christ and became the great champion of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And so the proclamation of Jesus risen from the dead because God in his power raised him to life, it's such momentous news that it turned our world around. It turned our world to refer to history in terms of B.C. and A.D. or B.C.E. and C.E., which really is the same thing. And so I want to put to you with those four points, and there's so many more we could look at, 
that the evidence for God is overwhelming. Only a fool would say that they don't believe in God without properly looking at the evidence, without weighing it up. Because you see, it's foolish. If, if God exists, then he is your creator. He's my creator. And we have to answer to him one day when we face him. And so to just dismiss it is foolish. And so I want to put it to you that if you are not a believer, then I urge you, not because I'm trying to push and force my way upon you, but because I believe a day is going to come where you need to face that God. And so I urge you out of love to look into these things. Don't just fall to the posture of our culture. Just because others say the trend of our culture, don't just fall to that. You need to be sure if you reject this. And so I would love to talk with you. And no, Josh would love to as well. I know he would love to talk with you afterwards if you wanted to explore these things like, like Brandon's friend Justin is doing. Justin might come out the other end saying, I've looked at all this and I don't believe in, and he has every right to do that. And Brandon and Justin will still be friends. And I want to urge you, not because we're trying to force this on you, but because we believe it's true and you have to face God one day. So don't be foolish. Look at it and only reject it if you've looked at it carefully. But if you are a believer, I want to say to you that there is so much evidence, brother and sister, so much evidence that there is a God and that that God is uh, is specifically made known in Jesus Christ. If you know Jesus Christ, you know God. He exists. And so, Christian, I want to say to you as we consider the evidence, it's so overwhelming that you can stand with confidence. You can stand strong that your faith is backed with powerful evidence. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for not only revealing yourself to us in the wonder and the magnificence of creation, but also in the word that you have given us specifically, the scriptures which change lives for good. And for mostly in sending your son Jesus, the word from you, the revelation from you in flesh. Our prayer this morning is that for those who believe, that they would be confident and that they would stand firm in their faith that what they believe is rational. And our prayer also, Lord, this morning is that those who don't believe would not cast it aside without looking into it carefully. Oh, Lord, if it is true and we think it is true, their souls are in danger and we don't want that. And we commend them to you and pray you would move them to look into these things, to look carefully. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.